If you please open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. That's found on page 575 of your pew Bible. But also, if you would, please uh, put a finger in, in that and, and open your Bible also to the gospel reading that Matthew ju- uh, that, uh, from Matthew that Nathan just read. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And if you're using the pew Bible, that's found on 807. So Isaiah 11, 1 through 9, and Matthew 1, 1 through 17. So to, to really iterate this context of today's reading from Isaiah, we're in the same situation that we've been in for the last three weeks uh, from chapter 7. Isaiah is, is prophesying to the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, King Ahaz. And the southern kingdom of Judah is, is facing impending doom from this coalition from the northern kingdom along with the kingdom of Syria. And they have the, surrounded the capital city of Jerusalem. They've laid siege to the capital city. But the Lord did not, and he would not allow his city to fall. And the Lord sends his prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz to assure him that this attack will not succeed and to urge him to place his trust in the Lord. The Lord even offers the king a sign to assure him in his weak faith. But Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign, and Ahaz refuses to trust the Lord. Rather, Ahaz forms this alliance with the, the wicked Assyrian kingdom. He even gives the Assyrian king the gold and the silver from the Lord's temple as a tribute. And because of Ahaz's unfaithfulness, the Lord, through Isaiah, tells the king that not only will the Assyrians defeat Judah's enemies of of Israel and Syria, but after they do this, they will betray Judah and they will conquer them as well. And throughout these chapters, we see sin and judgment. But Isaiah also gives hope. Isaiah gives prophecy of salvation, salvation for the remnant, salvation through a Messiah. And we see the Messiah many times in this section. In chapter 7, he was the sign of Emmanuel, the virgin, shall give birth to a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew explicitly tells us that this prophecy is fulfilled in Christ, the Messiah. And last week we saw the Messiah in chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And again, we see the Messiah here in chapter 11. So to set the the context for chapter 11, I need to say a little bit about chapter 10. We're not going to look at chapter 10 in detail. But in chapter 10, Isaiah gives a prophecy against Assyria, against the king, those who are are coming to to defeat um, Israel and Syria and uh, eventually uh, defeat Judah. And King Ahaz, is, this is King Ahaz's ally. This is the one that Ahaz thinks is going is to uh, uh, save him from his enemies. So Isaiah describes Assyria. And Assyria at this time is the most powerful nation in the world. And I see Isaiah, through the power of the Holy Spirit, describes Assyria as a mere tool, a mere instrument in the hand of the Lord. The God of Israel is using this empire to discipline his wayward people. And further, then, Isaiah prophesies that even though the Lord is using Assyria, they too will face judgment for their arrogance, for their wickedness, and they too will be destroyed. But before that, before that, the Lord will bring the Assyrians to the brink of conquest of Judah. He will bring them to the very edge of Jerusalem. And it's at this point, it's this point that the reading begins, the point where things look hopeless for Judah, where we are given another glimpse of the Messiah. And that's what we see in today's passage. So Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing vision. What an amazing vision that you have given your servant Isaiah. And it is an encouragement. It is a hope for your church, for your people throughout all time. And Lord, I pray now for your Holy Spirit to be with us. Lord, I pray that I will speak your words, your words with power and truth. You will anoint my words. And I pray, Father, you will open each one of our ears that we will hear from you. And Lord, I pray that we will not leave here the same. We will be changed. Each one of us will be changed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We will see him clearer. We will praise him more. We will glorify him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if a lot of high school yearbooks do this, but I remember when my older children were in high school and they went to a small Christian school, and it may be because it's a small school, but they had a part of their yearbook called the Senior Will. Do you remember that? The, the Senior Will. And each senior was given a, a full page in the yearbook to write a will. And this was a will for other seniors or, or for underclassmen. And these pages, they were basically filled with inside jokes and references known only to the students. And... and, and uh, Maybe few others. And for those who knew this, this was their favorite part. I remember my kids, when they would get it, they would first go to the wills, and they would read it. It was first part of the, the favorite part of the yearbook. And the kids would look at it, and, and, and they would be excited, and they would laugh at the inside jokes. But for those of us, like the parents, who didn't know the jokes or the references, this was the most confusing and the most boring section of the entire Yearbook. I remember I, I would open and I would read a few lines before just giving up in frustration because I didn't know any of the things that they were referencing. But the kids, the kids who were in the know, that was their favorite part. As they were reading it, they were laughing through each one of these things. Well, lists and genealogies, like Nathan just read, are the biblical equivalent, I think, of the senior will. Think about Nehemiah chapter 3. You have lists of dozens of names, few of which are, are mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And these are the people working on the wall. And I don't know if you've ever read through Nehemiah 3. It just goes on and on in which each section these people are, are working on. Or maybe First Chronicles that has multiple chapters of lists and tribes and clans. Again, many of these are not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And these are the sections that, you know, when you're doing your read through the Bible in a year or two years, however long you read through the Bible, you get to these and you kind of skim them. You've got to go, okay, okay, as you go in through these things. And that's perfectly reasonable. 
Now, some people may include this genealogy that opens Matthew's gospel. And some people wonder, you know, this opens the New Testament. Right? If you're writing a novel, don't the, the editors tell you, make sure you come in with a punch, you know, something that grabs their attention? Do you think genealogies is something that's going to grab someone's attention? So some people may think that this fits in the same category. But I don't think this is the case. I don't think this should be the case, especially for Christians. All Christians, we should recognize many names. Maybe not all, but many of the names on this list. See, this is not an obscure list. It's not like Nehemiah. This is not minor characters that are listed in Jesus' genealogy. These are some of the most major figures in all of Scripture. Look at Matthew 1.1. It reads, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David and Abraham, these are not minor characters. These are central figures in all the Old Testament. And this genealogy then traces God's promise through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through the patriarchs. We come down to Boaz. And those of you who've read the book of Ruth, you'll recognize that name. Boaz and, and Obed and Jesse. Jesse is the one who's mentioned in today's reading. And then to King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with King David. The Lord said to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, he says, and your house, meaning your descendants, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever, forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The Lord is saying to David, you will have a man on the throne forever. From this point forward, there will never not be a man on the throne. Now this promise certainly looks in jeopardy, doesn't it? It looks in jeopardy for Ahaz, who we see in this Matthew passage in, in verse 9, along with his father and grandfather and son. So verse 9 of Matthew 1, this is the time of Isaiah. This is what we're reading in this prophecy of Isaiah during the time of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. Well, the promise certainly looks in jeopardy at this point. In many points, the promise looked in jeopardy. And my friends, God keeps his promises. Even though this coalition of Israel and Syria is laying siege to Jerusalem, even though Ahaz's foolish and wicked alliance with the Syrians bring an even more deadly foe to the gates of Jerusalem, God's promise is firm. He is preserving a faithful remnant. And he's even preserving this, this wicked king, not for his sake, but for the sake of King David, for the covenant that he has made with King David. And then over 130 years later, Jerusalem did indeed fall, not to the Assyrians, but to the Babylonians. And during the reign of Ahaz's great, great, great grandson, God's people are deported to Babylon. But even in exile, even in exile, God is keeping his covenant with David through Jeconiah, through Shealtiel, through Zerubbabel, as we see in verse 12. And notice that Matthew breaks down this genealogy into three groups of 14. You've got from, from Abraham to David, from David to the deportation to Babylon, and from the deportation to the birth of Christ. And we know the names that we see in the first section. Most of us know those names. Many of us know the names of the second section, if you've read through Kings and Chronicles. But we don't know the names in the third section. At least not until we come to Joseph. That's a name that we know. But God knows these names. God was preserving this kingly line, this line of David, through all the political turmoil that was going on for this time that these names are listed. And this was a chaotic time. If you remember a couple of years ago when we studied the, the book of Daniel, Daniel prophesied about this time between Babylon and the Christ. Remember, he, he had these visions of the statue, and there were different parts of the statue represented different kingdoms. 
And there were, there were a lot of players. It was complex. See, after Babylon, there was the Mede Empire, there was the Persian Empire, then came Alexander the Great and the, and the Greek Empire, and Alexander the Great died at only 33 years old, and his kingdom was split up into the Seleucids and others, and eventually the Roman Empire came in. And during all this time, God's people were not independent. They were, they were a very minor player. They were a pawn subject to all these worldly powers. But during all this time, God was still preserving this kingly line. Even though no one else knew it, God knew this kingly line of David. And in the birth narratives of Jesus, we read about a king of the Jews. We read about King Herod. Now, my friends, Herod was not of the line of David. He was not even Jewish. He was an Idumean. He was an Edomite, if you remember your Old Testament. Those were descendants of Esau, not Jacob. And that's what Herod was. Herod was just a politician. He was someone who, who got in tight with the Romans, and he was appointed to be the, the puppet leader of the Jews, the puppet king of the Jews. And this is why Herod is so enraged when the wise men come seeking the true king of the Jews. He's jealous. He's afraid. And he brutally kills these, these children to protect his illegitimate position of power as king of the Jews. But even through all this, the godly line, the line of David was still preserved. And we don't even know if the men themselves listed in, this, in, the, in these later parts of this genealogy, if these men even knew that they were the king of Israel. They were the godly line. It may have only been known to God. It may have been revealed to Matthew through the Holy Spirit. We don't know. We have no indication that godly Joseph, Jesus' legal, although not his biological father, his legal father, if godly Joseph knew that he was actually the rightful king of God's people. He certainly wasn't living in a palace. He wasn't rich. He didn't have servants. And notice that the line stops with Jesus. It doesn't say Jesus was father of so and keeps going to this day. It stops at Jesus. And that's because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David that his throne will be established forever. Jesus is the eternal king who is at this moment sitting on the king, the king throne, the throne of David. Jesus is currently the king. He is currently reigning at this moment from heaven. But my friends, one day, as we have sung throughout this service, one day he will return. One day, and it could be today. We, we pray that it's today. But today, right at this moment, his kingdom is spiritual. At this moment, his kingdom is invisible. But one day, and again, I pray that it is today. We pray that it is today. His kingdom will be both spiritual and physical. It will be visible. We will see it. All will see it. But God is, is so gracious. Even though God has given this promise to David, and God can't lie, it, 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 we know it's true. Even though he has given this promise that David's line will rule forever, God gives further assurance. And that's what we see here in Isaiah chapter 11. See, Ahaz is desperate. He does not have much confidence in this covenant. And this is why he makes this alliance with the wicked Assyrian king. And later during the reign of Ahaz's son Hezekiah, the prophecy about the Assyrian conquest of Judah is actually fulfilled, and the people see the Assyrians poised, ready to conquer Jerusalem. And at this time, it's so easy for them to forget. It's easy for them to fear and forget this covenant. What about the time of the exile? What about the time of, of Daniel and the others when they're exiled from Babylon? It's easy for them to forget this promise of David. 
Or how about when Zerubbabel and, and Ezra and Nehemiah and the people return to the promised land, this devastated promised land that's now inhabited by a foreigners, foreigners who resent their return. Their Jerusalem is destroyed, the gates are down, the, the, uh, the temple is in ruins. What, is it, what, what do they think? How, how do they think? It's, it's easy for them to forget these promises. It's easy to forget when, when there's all these mighty empires that are, that are, that are the big people and, and, and the people of God seem to be forgotten and insignificant. It's easy for them to forget the promises. And what about Joseph? What about Joseph, the true king, when he is forced to travel 90 miles by foot with his pregnant wife, the mother of the Messiah, all because of a decree made by a pagan emperor thousands of miles away in Rome? It could be very easy for him to forget this covenant. And God in his mercy, God in his mercy gives his people the prophecy that we are looking at today. This prophecy in Isaiah 11. And here we not only see a confirmation of this promise given to David, the Davidic covenant, we also see the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So look at, uh, look at verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 11. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So as we saw in the the genealogy from Matthew, Jesse was the father of King David. And what better description of David's kingly line after the exile during these 14 generations when no one knows who they are, when when maybe even themselves, the kings themselves, do not know that they are descendants of kings and descendants of David. What better description of Joseph and his ancestors than as a stump, the stump of Jesse? I mean, think about a great tree. A great tree, when it is cut down, all that is left is this humble, tree, humble stump. The tree can be seen for miles. It can provide shelter for animals and, and feed many people. But the stump, the stump is unknown. The stump is overlooked. The stump is insignificant. And the stump of Jesse shows us the seemingly insignificant origin of the king of kings. The seemingly insignificant fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. It shows us the root of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he comes from. And notice that Jesus is not only the root coming, the shoot coming from Jesse. Notice in verse 10, he is also called the root of Jesse. And here we see, unbeknownst to Isaiah, here we see the Holy Spirit giving us more clues, giving us more clues about the dual nature of the Messiah. Jesus is both fully man and fully God. He is fully man in that he is a descendant of David. He is a descendant of Jesse. He is the shoot. But Jesus is also fully God. He is his divine nature. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the source of all things. He is the creator of all people, including David, including Jesse. He is the root of Jesse. And Isaiah, in these three messianic visions that we've seen in these chapters... Remember in verse 7, it was the Emmanuel sign, the, the uh, born of the virgin. In chapter 9, it was the child born and the son given. In chapter 11 is what we're looking at this morning. And what Isaiah is doing in these pictures that he's giving, he, he's painting us a picture of the Messiah. He's giving us more and more details about Jesus. And with each prophesy, he is giving us another detail. In verse 2, we are given additional attributes of our Savior. It says in verse 2, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Those of you who are in Sunday school, you know exactly what that is talking about. 
And as a matter of fact, this should immediately come to, to mind what this is talking about. The Spirit of the Lord rested upon him. This was Jesus' baptism. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remained on him, remained on Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit comes at the beginning of his ministry uh, to anoint Jesus. His, his messianic ministry is anointed by the Holy Spirit. And we see this at his baptism. And it's interesting that not only are we given information about the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, we're also given information about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. It says he is the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He is the spirit of counsel and might. He is the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And my friends, as believers, as new creations in Christ, those of us who have been regenerated by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, we too have this same Holy Spirit in us. As believers, the Holy Spirit leads us in wisdom and understanding. Understanding of God. Understanding of his word. He leads us in counsel. He leads us in the counsel of holiness and, and thinking in accordance with God's thoughts. He leads us in might. The might that comes from living in alignment with God, with his word, with his ways. But even before regeneration, even before regeneration, the Holy Spirit leads us in knowledge and the fear of the Lord. See, he, the the Holy Spirit, he's the one who opens our eyes. He opens our eyes to our sinful condition, our helplessness in and of ourselves before a holy God. And he leads us to faith, faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit removes the the blindness and and the hardness of our hearts, and he leads us to a healthy fear of the Lord, which is absolutely essential in order to come to him in faith, in order to be saved. Look at the first part of verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. See, the Messiah, because he is sinless, because he is God incarnate, because he is anointed by the Holy Spirit, he delights in the Lord. In the fear of the Lord. And fear here is not, not abject terror. It's not dread. It is a holy reverence for God. For God's splendor. For his might. For his glory. And Jesus' greatest delight is the glory of his Father. His greatest delight is seeing and revealing the Father. In doing the will of the Father. And my friends, we too. We too as Christians. Because we are united to Christ. Because we are too filled with the Holy Spirit. We too should find our delight in the Lord and in his glory. This is what we're made for. This is what our our first catechism question says. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now unlike Christ who did this perfectly, who always and fully found his delight in the fear of the Lord, we do this very imperfectly. But as we grow in grace, as we grow in sanctification... We should see our desires change. We should see that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The things that that delight others, the things that once used to delight us, fame, fortune, pleasure, praise, we should see all those things diminish as he becomes more. He becomes our all in all. We see a different attribute of the Messiah in the next part of verse Uh, verse 3 through the middle of verse 4. And this says, He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. See, one of the most frustrating things living in this fallen world is that it is so difficult 
almost impossible for us to know the truth. It's difficult for us to make wise judgments because we can only go by what we see. We can only go by what we hear. We don't know another person's heart. And I know many times being here in the church, I have had people come to me asking for financial assistance, asking for help, and, and you know, with these sad stories, and you don't know what is true. Just, just last Sunday, Sunday evening, I was at a gas station, fill up the, fill up the car over here on, on, on old Dawson Road, uh, and uh, a guy comes up to me with a sad story and says, you know, I, 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 I don't have a place to stay tonight. Can you give me a little money for, for a hotel? I went to the Salvation Army, and they were full, and I, I, I couldn't go. And, and I said, I could do better than that. I said, I know the guy who runs the Salvation Army. I got on my phone, and I called him. I said, Chris, I got a guy here who needs a place to stay tonight. <clears throat> he said, well, I, you know, I have a family with me. And I said, Chris, is it okay? He's got a family. He says, no problem. He's got a wife. He's got kids. We, we've got room for him. We can give him a meal. And, and you know, as I'm going through, I said, no problem. And, and, and you know, the guy's telling me about all these things. And I said, we've got a place for you. And, and I said, you need a ride there? And he goes, no, I don't need a ride. I'm okay. And he thanks me. And he walks across the street. And I figure he's going to his car to get his family to go drive there. And as I'm pulling out of the gas station, I see him talking to another guy at the gas station, same line that he was giving me. You know that it was not sincere. It was a hustle. And we can't judge the heart. That's the problem. That's what's frustrating. We can only go by what we see and what we hear. But not so with the Messiah. He will know absolute truth. He will judge righteously. And this is, this is especially encouraging if you are suffering, if you are under unrighteousness, if you are under injustice. It is very encouraging to know that one day there will be someone who will know the truth, who will see the truth. But not only will the Messiah judge with righteousness, he also comes with power. Look at the rest of verse 4. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. And where does the power come from? The power comes from his word. He simply needs to speak, and it's done. Again, what an encouragement. What an encouragement to a people who are under oppression. Whether they were fearing this Israel-Syria coalition, whether they were fearing the Assyrian Empire, or, or the Babylonians, or the Romans, or the hostility of a, an anti-God culture that we face today. My friends, the Messiah is not weak. He is mighty. He is sovereign. He executes his will through the word of his power. And you know what? That word is still active today. We hold that word. It's right here. We hold that word in our hands. That word, the very word of God, the very power of God is in our hands. And this word, the, the word of God, it has the power to bring judgment. It has the power to bring life. And Satan does not want this to go forth. He does not. He wants to do everything he can to destroy this word, to stop the word. The power of, of darkness seeks to, to, to stop up our ears from hearing and silence our lips from proclaiming this word. My friends, we are in a spiritual battle. That is the truth. We are in a spiritual battle. And we see this in verse 5. It says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness, the belt of his loins. What verse does this remind you of? What does this remind you of? Does it sound familiar? And it should. It should sound familiar. It's the armor of God. The armor of God that we, we see in Ephesians 6 that reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And we have this armor, the spiritual armor that is given to us so that we can stand firm, having 
fastened on the belt of truth and having the breastplate of righteousness and having the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the the outward enemies that we face, the outward enemies that God's people have faced throughout history, they are simply the physical manifestation of a spiritual battle, the spiritual battle. And you see, on our own, on our own, we are no match for these malevolent spiritual forces. On our own, not only would we uh, be destroyed by these evil spirits, but even worse than that, we would compromise. We would be used as agents of the devil to persecute God's people, to blaspheme God's holy name, if we were on our own. But thankfully, thankfully, we are not on our own. We have the Messiah. We have the root and shoot of Jesse. We have the Emmanuel, child born of the virgin. We have God with us. We have the child born and son given, the one who is both fully God and fully man. And being fully man, he is qualified to be our substitute, to pay the penalty for our sins. But he is also fully God, meaning that he has the capacity that no mere man has to endure the infinite punishment of our sins that are committed against a holy, infinite God and what they deserve. And for those of us who are united to Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, this substitution has already occurred. There is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. We have the power of Christ to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. And we will be able to withstand the spiritual attack, and we will prevail. We will be protected by the spiritual armor of Ephesians 6. And we will skillfully wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the Word of power, as we, as we storm the gates of hell, demolishing the strongholds of error and unrighteousness. And this is the call, and this is the charge of every Christian. It is the battle for Christ, by the power of Christ, while abiding in Christ. This is our charge. This is our privilege. This is our joy. And then one day, and we pray that day is soon, one day the battle will end. One day, and again, we pray that it is today, our Messiah will return. And then what is now invisible will become visible. And all our enemies will be vanquished, including all sin, including all illness, including all infirmities, all accidents. And our last enemy of all, death itself, will be defeated. And my friends, we're given a glimpse. We're given a glimpse of our eternal home in the new heavens and new earth in the last four verses of this, par- of this passage. In verses 6 through 9, and in these verses we see an end of the curse. We see an end to the fall. The curse that has been placed on the creation due to man's sin, due to the rebellion of us against our maker, due to the fall, we see that curse. In verse 6, it says the wolf We see the wolf dwelling with the lamb. We see the leopard lying down with the young goat. We see the calf and the lion lie together. See, the natural enmity that exists between a predator and the prey will cease. It will be gone. It will be no more. Today, in in this fallen world, these animals would never dwell together. If you had them in a zoo, you couldn't put them together because they would be eaten. The lamb and and the baby goat and the wolf, they would be devoured by these predators. But not in the new kingdom. But when Christ returns, the whole structure of the creation will be forever changed. Animals will not eat other animals. Verse 7 tells us that the cow and the bear, they shall graze together. It says that the lion, think of the mighty lion, will eat straw just like 
the ox. And not only will be there be no enmity among the animals, there will, be, there will be peace between the animals and men. And this is seen in verse 8, where the cobra will no longer be dangerous. It says a nursing child, can you think of that? A nursing child will play with the cobra and not fear being killed by its poison. And, and there's actually much ironing, I think, in the judgment that God pronounced on the earth due to the fall. See, the essence of the fall was our rebellion against our creator, against God. We, we are his image bearer. We are his divinely anointed stewards of the creation. And we uh, rebelled against him. So the judgment that we get, it, it, again, it's so ironic. It's so, it's so perfectly poetic. Is the judgment against the creation again, rebelling against us. It is rebelling against us who are given dominion over it. But when Christ returns, there will be perfect harmony, not only between God and man, not only between man and man, but also between men and nature. As the first part of verse 9 says, there will be nothing to hurt or destroy. I mean, just think about it. There will be no poisonous snakes. There will be no bee stings, no no poison ivy, no twisted ankles, no gnats. We will have all the beauty. We will have all the adventure that we have now in nature, but none of the harm, none of the struggle, none of the frustration that we have today. In fact, far from the creation being a source of of pain and frustration, all of the the creatures, all the creatures will actually be a source of joy for us. We We will even enjoy gnats in the new creation. And God has now given us, I think, a taste of this harmony that we're going to experience with all creation. And he's given us in... There's, there's a few of the animals. Most of the animals we have enmities with. But there are a few animals that we have at this point that we actually have a relationship with. And that's our pets. And in the new creation, basically, we will have the same relationship with all the animals that we have with our pets. We will have pet rattlesnakes and mountain lions and even pet spiders in the new creation. <laughs> and I'm so looking forward to it. I, I really, I'm so looking forward to I mean, I love nature. I love hiking in the mountains. Can you imagine hiking in the new creation? With, with, with your pet cobra and, and the grizzly bear and your gnat friends and, and just having a great time together. And, but as great as this will be, and it will be great, this is not the best part of this eternal messianic kingdom. The best part is seen in the end of verse 9. Look at the end of verse 9. It says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, the best part is the knowledge of the Lord. The full, majestic unveiled, beautiful glory of the ever-living, almighty, triune God will be all around us. He will be the very air that we breathe. He will fill us with unimaginable joy, unimaginable love, love for him, love for all those around us, even, even love for the gnats and the spiders. And my friends, it will be impossible. It will be impossible for us to be afraid. It will be impossible for us to hate. It will be impossible for us to, to be frustrated. Even if we tried, we could not. It would be impossible when we are unceasingly saturated in his eternal and glorious presence. And my friends, the Holy Spirit, through Isaiah, gave this prophecy of the shoot and stump of Jesse, of the Messiah, to encourage us, to strengthen God's people throughout history. And we may not be facing the impending doom of the Assyrian invasion or or Babylonian captivity or, or Roman occupation, but we live in the same fallen world. Every single one of us lives in the same fallen world. And we face the same spiritual forces that hate us, that seek to destroy us, that seek to destroy everything good in this world. And we have our own fears. 
We have fears of, of illness. We have fears of injustice. We have fears of, of injury. We have fears of war, even, even nuclear war. We have fears of, of economic collapse. We have fears of pandemics and climate, and climate catastrophes and death of loved ones and car accidents and anything else we have fears of. Many, many fears. And there are more than enough things to terrify us in this fallen world. But my friends, we cling to Christ. We rest in Christ. We trust his word. We fix our minds on the, the glorious eternal home that is promised by the one who cannot lie. And know this, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, and I pray this every single one who hears my voice, if you are in Christ, you are just as secure. You are just as safe. You are just as loved as you will be on that day when you see him face to face in the new creation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We know that they are true. We know that they are powerful. We know that they are amazing. Father, I pray for every single one of us here. I pray if there are any that do not know you, Lord, you will change that now. And for those of us who do know you, Father, make it real. Make it real what we believe and that we know that one day we will be in glory. We know that the, the, the trials that we experience today are not worthy to be compared to what we will experience in glory. And help us live like that. Help us to be salt and light in this fallen world until you come back, making it a little less miserable. We pray it all in Jesus' name for his glory alone. Amen.